That's some sensational catch. Absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back firmly by Maiello. Hammered down the ground. It could fly all the way for a maximum. It's gonna soar into the sky. That's the six they needed. That's 50 for Furbrush. What a knock that is from him. Outstanding striking. And that six brings Guernsey back into the game. Could be a catch. What a catch. One-handed grab. And that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh my days, we have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Under the Covers, Guernsey Cricket's very own podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Guernsey Cricket Development Manager, and on this podcast we will be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators and other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's episode, we play back the recently hosted Q&A session with coaches sally Ann Beams, Kevin Shine and Paul Franks. Okay, so guys, thanks very much for coming on. Um, before we start, if you could just give a little insight into uh, a little bit about your background into coaching, um, what you're currently up to, uh, if we sort of start left to right. So as the way I see it, sally Ann, you're top left. Yeah, so I'm now sally Ann Beams, Beams, was Briggs. Um, pretty much been coaching now for 15 years, I reckon. So I worked through, I guess, a junior pathway system. Um, was lucky enough to work on an England Academy programme and at Loughborough University under the very good guidance of Graham Dilley. Um, he kind of shoved me in the right direction from a coaching point of view. Um, and from that system, kind of moved through to the Loughborough Lightning Women's programme uh, and then through the ECB's female um, pathway as a coach. And now find myself in uh, Tasmania, so pretty far from where I started, but I'm now the um, female Tigers head coach and Hurricanes female head coach. Excellent. And uh, Kevin, I think you're up next. Okay. Um, I was a professional cricketer for Hampshire, uh, Middlesex and Somerset. Forced to retire through injury, funnily enough, for a fast bowler. Um, And then I became head coach of Somerset for five years and moved into the uh, role of National League for fast bowling for the ECB for 14 years. And um, the last 18 months, had the pleasure of working with Mr. Paul Franks at <laughs> Nottinghamshire County Creek Club as an assistant coach, pretty much, um, uh, well, obviously up to now, but with a, um, a view to looking after the fast bowlers. Okay, excellent. And then finally down to Franksy. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I've been coaching now for eight years. Um, much like Shiny, I um, had a professional career with Nottinghamshire. I then, well, I was retired, shall I say, um, at about the right time and moved into coaching, uh, worked with the second 11 uh, and across the Player Pathway Academy um, and Senior Emerging Player Programme. Um, and now work alongside Shiny as a team of four underneath Peter Moores, ex-England England coach, um, well-renowned coach, top man. Um, and I've just taken my first tentative steps into franchise coaching. I've uh, done some work in the recently finished Abu Dhabi T10 League and I'll be doing some work this coming summer with the Trent Rockets. Yeah, so I think uh, from my research, both Paul and sally you're going to be involved in the 100. Um, are you both looking forward to that? And Kevin, are you, are you involved in the 100 at all? No, I'm going to be staying with, with not, so otherwise we'll have no coaches left. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very much looking forward to it. Obviously, we, we didn't get going last year um so i'm excited to be a part of something that i think is going to be incredible particularly uh, for the female game yes yeah, so obviously that's just been given yeah. the green light as well to be the, the first 
game within the competition as well. The, the ladies' game is first up. Yeah, I think, you know, with what's happened with the pandemic, you know, they've had to reshuffle things and make it by secure. And it's actually worked out very well to, you know, with all the games being double headers and the, and the women getting the, the first profile game. It's, I think it's probably worked out better for the female side, but um, it should be pretty exciting. And then Frankie, with, with yourself um, assisting, I uh, must be looking forward to that as well. Yeah, obviously we've had um, some well, some significant change. Stephen Fleming can't can't join us this year as head coach, so we've we've moved on to Andy Flower, another world-renowned head coach. You know, um, Chinese worked with him in the past, and has still been on on all his bits and bobs. And now he likes to go about his work, so I'm looking forward um, to working with him. Um, the hundred is um, <laughs> is out there, and it's open to be shot at. I'm excited about working in it. I agree with Sally, and I think it's brilliant for the game as a whole. And I think people will either love it or loathe it. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think on that, the T20 when it first came around, uh, that, that was sort of shot down pretty quickly. And that's probably the, the market leader at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and understandably so. It's put, it's put bums on seats all around the world. It's a fantastic product. Uh, I think the ECB are now trying to match that T20 product with something new and diverse, um, try and bring new people into the game. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. Yeah, and then just a few questions uh, along the way, but one for you, Franksy. How did you find sort of transitioning from from playing straight into coaching? So obviously you moved pretty quickly from playing straight into coaching. Yeah, I've done a little bit. Um, I've been to Australia and, and tried to coach Australians. If, you, if you've had a go at that, then you can probably, you're probably ready to go. Um, but yeah, I've spent a couple of winters overseas trying to do some coaching while I was playing at the same time. And that presents its own challenges. But yeah, I enjoyed... I'd always thought of the idea of coaching and wanting to coach. Uh, and I think initially when I got into coaching, I probably wanted to do it for the wrong reasons. I thought it was all I ever knew and I thought I was going to be quite good at it. Um, and as I got into it, then I realised that maybe I just needed to give myself a bit of space and just chill out a little bit and, and then progressed to where I am now, um, which is, you know, pretty easy going, you know, pretty, pretty phlegmatic about stuff and, and quite hard working. So, yeah, I really enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy working with players and teams. Uh, and see where it goes. And then, Kevin, you sort of were a bit the same. So um, you took the England bowling job uh, at only the age of 36. How did you find that? Because obviously you're working with players who are very similar in age to yourself. Um, well, I'd had five years at Somerset before that as a head coach. And, and I've got to be brutally honest, I was too young. Um, and you learn by experiences. So um, I, I wouldn't change it for the world but I would do it very differently if I was to do it again. Um, but yeah, that, that um, it was a baptism of fire because I went to the Ashes 2006-07 and that was a 5-0 whitewash uh, followed by the World Cup, which didn't go particularly well. Um, and I remember coming back absolutely exhausted from that. And a, a great man called Gordon Lord, who was the elite coach education manager, uh, sort of put me back on my feet again because you know if you continue to take big hits sometimes you need to just take a step back and I, I probably reviewed that in uh, in a pretty honest way with Lordy and and basically I probably tried too hard and I thought I could be all things to everyone and that and that's not the case as a coach you've got to almost just try and flow and let people let people learn about themselves. And it, it was a huge, huge learning 
for me, then moving through my time as a national lead and being lucky enough to work with you know, all, all the younger fast bowlers that were coming through, seeing them transition through to England. And now, you know, another totally different experience. Even though I've worked in county cricket before, going back into it, it's a completely different game to the 14 years previously. And, and I'm learning about that again. Yeah, so I was going to ask that, sort of, you know, has the game just moved completely in a different direction? Yes, it has. I, I, so I would have finished playing as professionalism was starting to come in um, and then obviously saw it take off massively and was lucky enough to be a part of you know, trying to build this New England side and the new ways of, around training, preparation, just professionalism. And you go back into county cricket and I think Frank will hopefully agree with this. You know, all of our county cricketers, first of all, they've got to be good enough to play for knots, but then they all aspire to go on to higher honours. And the scrutiny is is massive in county cricket now. It wasn't when I played and not as much when I was coaching it. So there, there are huge amounts of pressures on these players and the coaches, to be fair, because it's professional sport. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely changed. It's it's not quite as carefree as, as when I played. <laughs> Um, but it's definitely changed for the better, especially for people who now get unbelievable opportunities to get better if they want to take them. Right. Okay. Yeah. No. Definitely. Uh, and then certainly, um, for yourself, did how did you sort of get involved with coaching? Was it throughout your entire playing career, or did that sort of come after? Yeah. No. I, I kind of did it alongside playing. So I played for Yorkshire for all my playing career, and then went through myself the the England pathway (laughs) um yeah so you know I loved my time there and part of that experience was you know I got the opportunity to work with the Yorkshire pathway um and you know I just really enjoyed it and if I you know if I compare my playing to coaching it wasn't until I fully immersed myself in coaching that I realized that it ticked all my boxes um I definitely find that you know a lot more self-worth in the rounds taking someone else on a journey I don't know what I don't know what that is for me you know pushing myself it wasn't rewarding as taking someone else to somewhere special um and yeah I I didn't really realize that till I till I went into coaching and that was you know when I got to Loughborough University as a student um I met Graham Dilley and that's where the high performance center was for the ECB I kind of just you know kind of turn up on a weekend and see how things how you do things um and I worked pretty much with the age groups for two years just rocking up as this someone who would stand in the background and seeing how things or how people would op- operate in their own coaching styles and then from that you know you said well actually you're going to take this seriously and you do your level three and then I got on my level four and did my level four with Frank C um god he was interesting back then um, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which blossomed into a lovely friendship. Um, and then, yeah, I just started to get these head coaching roles. I think one thing that did put me in good stead into, I guess, these leadership positions was I always captained. Um, you know, I captained Yorkshire, captained all the England teams, England age groups teams I played for. Um, and I just worked out that I love the responsibility. I'm not I'm not a good person to, in that assisting role. I think I, I, think I need that responsibility. Um, and sometimes I like to say things that <laughs> I probably step on too many people's toes at times. But yeah, it wasn't till I was about 31. That I actually took a step back from playing and 
um, and then immersed myself fully in, into coaching from that. So I had a couple of years where I was probably trying to, you know, head coach a program and play, which was pretty challenging. But women's cricket wasn't properly professional then. Um, and then I took my role as the high performance manager at Loughborough University, working as the men's assistant coach. And then we formulated a women's program off the back of that. But did you ever? Yeah, get, that, that's how it all happened. Did you ever get any sort of kickback from coaching men's teams? Um, was there any reluctancy of men listening in, or is that you know something that didn't happen? Yeah, I did actually. Um, at the time, you know when you know, Dill was like, right, you're leading this session. I thought, you absolute git, because mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. Like, I didn't feel I was ready, but my God, he pushed me. And at that point, I was like, you're pushing me too hard. But the skills I learned and, and you know, stepping out of my comfort zone, you know, I'm, I'm much more thankful for it as I reflect back now. Like, you know, I remember throwing balls to Sam Billings. He was he was a lot scrawnier back then. But, you know, to see, you know, a, a male player and played a very small part in those four years that he had at Loughborough, you know, I'm very thankful for that for those moments. But I, I got a lot of respect and support back then. Um, and I have throughout my whole journey. A lot of people will talk to me about, you know, did you feel discrimination? What was the equality like? Was it hard work in a male-dominated world? Um I think it is. And I think I've got a responsibility to shift people's lenses. But my experience was a true great one. And, you know, um, it still is. Yeah, no, definitely. Obviously, the game, like we said, is is moving in that direction, which is which is great for ladies cricket. And in particular for us in Guernsey, obviously, we've got international status um, down the down the sort of ladder, if you like. But yeah, no, definitely an opportunity for, for women's cricket. Um, with regards to sort of winter training, this is an open question to, to any of you guys. Uh, how does that look and how is it sort of structured? Want me to fire on that one first? Um, well, basically, we slightly different during COVID times. I, I think normally we run what we would call a winter programme that starts early, mid-November. And we, we try and break that programme up into three sections between, like I say, the early, the early part of November, the Christmas break, and then a, a separate section into the February half term and then, sort of the final run of pre-season comes during this period now, which is the lead into um, proper pre-season playing games, which obviously is up and coming in about two weeks. And you're asking the players all sorts of various questions, really, um, about where they were as individuals over the course of the previous season. Um, You're trying to put credit in the bank based on the fact you know you're going to ask a lot of them physically. So there's an expectation that sits there for them to be the best version of themselves. Um, And... As myself and Shiny experience from day to day, some of them do it and do it great, and others of them still press the buttons and don't always get it right. Um, and that's even in this, what we would consider modern professional era. Um, and ultimately, that will continue to get more professional um, and more testing. But that's the rough guideline um, for how we try and structure our winter program. Any more, Shiny? Well, that very eloquently. Thanks, <laughs> said no one ever <laughs> um yeah it feels a long time ago our pre-season now because we're at the back end of our season um and you know it, uh, in Tasmania I think a fortunate in some case because you know if you didn't turn the telly on here you probably wouldn't know COVID existed it's 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 bizarre experience uh for you know someone from England having your family going through everything and then you're in Tasmania and I've been living a pretty normal life for a long time now 
Um, but for as far as winter programming goes, it's it's a it's a long stretch for players. Um, and the key thing for me is always trying to keep them excited and wanting to come up and train day in day out. And the thing that I've really bought into of late um, was you know only doing training blocks throughout a long preseason and making sure the players get a good week off. And it's not so much from a physical point of view, it's a mental point of view. Um, we've got to make sure that players come back excited. You know, we, we train in a very sterile environment most of the time in a in a long rectangle and it represents nothing of our game. Um, we've, we've got to make it exciting and, and keep them eager to want to come back and miss the game. So, yeah, I think the biggest thing I do now is just try and work in four or five week blocks, get rid of them for a bit and let them come back ready to go again. Uh, but it follows a similar process. You know, we, we try and make it very individual, um, you know, to, to their needs, um, to make sure they're ticking off the things that they need to develop and also keep an eye on, you know, what we need as a team moving forward. And in relation to bowlers, do bowlers get a lot of sort of off time in the in the winter or you know, do they keep sort of bowling throughout, obviously, to avoid spikes in, in workload? Do you want me to answer this one? Yeah, go, yeah, go um, Shani. Um, so, here you go. Hopefully, a lot of coaches are going to like this. Bowlers should never stop bowling and they should never stop training. I, I'm, I've got a huge dislike of the word periodization. I get it. I understand it. I, I know where it comes from. But I think it gives... Um, it gives players an excuse to have a rest and probably um, undo a lot of really good work that's already been done. I'm not, I'm not talking about turning people into um, machines. You know, you've got to have downtime. You have to have other interests outside of cricket. That is a must. But if you choose to be a professional bowler, um, the non-negotiable there is you have to keep training and you have to keep bowling. And And I think it's pretty well backed up by some great research. Also, if you look back uh, in history, and you must be absolutely respectful of history, bowlers bowled an awful lot more overs than we do now. Now, the game has changed. You've got to be able to feel, you've got to be a better athlete. You've got to be able to field well. Um, you're you're scrutinising the goals, the paces that you bowl. But the fact is, you know, when you look at the overs that, the bowlers of yesteryear's bowled, they bowled an awful lot more. And when you look at the way they played or trained, they just kept going. And um, you know, I, I'm trying to work that into the knots bowlers for now. I was trying to do that before I left the ECB, which is to, to just try and keep people going. And, and some coaches here will know about chronic and acute workloads. It sounds a bit technical, but chronic, you just keep them flowing. An acute is a spike. As soon as you get these spikes, you can almost guarantee that 28 days later they go bang. And we've seen really good examples of that. Um, so through this winter, I've been trying to just slowly build in around about 150 to 180 overs into their one-to-ones. So as, as Francie said there, we sit down, we do their sort of case conference, we work out what they would like to work on. And that's very much a conversation we might actually come in and and steer them a certain way. Um, but but bottom line is then I try and build their technical work or their or their um, their skill work into that 150 to 180 overs by the time we got to the 10, which was two weeks ago. Right. So now we're able to effectively let them go and try and game harden them up. 
and, and that's another massively important part of, um, of their development. You're trying to stop them from becoming training camp bowlers. You know, you, there's a certain amount of that they have to do, but then you have to let them go and find out about themselves. And trust me, I find that very difficult because my preferred way is to nurture. And working with, um, with, with Peter Moores, who's um, you know, a fantastic coach to work for. I mean, he, he does prod the players, but he, he prods myself and Franksy quite hard as well. You, you do have to you know, really stay on your game with Peter. And, and I really appreciate that because I've worked a little bit in isolation working for the ECB. You're a national lead and you just do your thing. Produce your bowlers, get on with it. And you do have a Lions tour. You see if you can get them through to be good enough then you go on to the next phase. This is much more about helping these guys to grow over a long period of time. So my, my, my absolute advice to anyone working with fast bowlers now is keep them bowling, keep them training, um, and then help them to become hardened match players by you know, having those groups rather than periodization. You've got a nice sort of flow to your year, whether you're working with younger players or hardened players, just try and get that same flow in place. And then obviously alongside that, I guess, strength and conditioning sits, sits alongside it and probably something which has really developed over the last 15 years. Yeah, absolute non-negotiable. Now, um, there's a lot of press goes out there which uh, would say that uh, fast bowlers should not lift weights. Absolute rubbish. They say that they get injured lifting weights. Absolute rubbish. They get injured bowling. They very Unless they're very badly coached in a gym, um, they always get injured bowling. You have to try and, and write an insurance check, which will allow you to try and do your job for as long as you can. One thing is a guarantee as a fast bowler, you are getting injured no matter how hard you train. Frank Sia will definitely back me up on that one. And I'll definitely back myself up on that one, having spent quite a bit of time in the slab. Um, so what you try and do is get into a, a condition, so both physically and technically, that you can be really efficient and then you can actually evolve your skills, go out and enjoy it. And then when you get injured, you know, hopefully it doesn't last for too long, but the, the people around you will help you then get back. And then you can start that sequence off again. And hopefully the injuries become less and less and less. But I think that's then the way to enjoy yourself. So yeah, the, the strength and condition is a non-negotiable, but make sure you've got a really good person to help you with that. Um, and make sure it is specific for the type of bowler you are. Shiny, just on that, when, when you talk about 150 to 180 overs, where, where does that come from? Because I know you're big on all your research. And the other thing is, what, how do you feel about bowlers bowling back-to-back in training, so like back-to-back days? Um, my so, yeah, so, so I, I sort of still go on. The, well, I, I worked it out the way... Um, Peter Moores wanted to run in those blocks, as Frank, she mentioned, those blocks. I then sit down and in my really boring, nerdy way, I use a, a special spreadsheet that I've, that I've got, which actually has the formulas for chronic and acute workloads. And you look to not take them over 150% of their previous seven days. Now, listen, I'm a, I'm a thick, fast bowling coach. <laughs> and, and, and I've had to sit down and work very hard to understand this, but it does work. I still yeah. work around the principle, if I can, on the 742, which is in a seven-day block, don't mow more than four days, and no more than two days in a row. 
I'm a yeah. big fan of back-to-backs once you get them going. We've only now just started our back-to-back bowling. So during yeah. the winter, we can only train indoors. And, you know, even if in your best shock padded um, indoor school, it's still twice as hard as the hardest pitch in the world. Yeah. So you have to be mindful of that. So I was really only running them on 15 overs a week. So, you know, you work the maths out on that. And I worked out that if I could get them to 150 overs by building them slowly and, and working this chronic workloads, I'd then be able to get them to 20 overs a week, which made practice useful. Because remember, you do have to make sure your bowlers are, don't like to say it, but they're there to actually bowl at the batters as well. Yeah. So you want to make sure that, you know, we've got eight, eight to 10 fast bowlers, including our all-rounders. Then you've got your spinners. You want to make sure that your practices are really good as well. So I can say to Peter, well, you've got X amount of overs. So today we've just run a practice with, um, how many overs was it again, Francie, we had in that practice today? We had 80, um, 42 and 42, 84. Yeah, so 84 overs of practice in the tent with all of our proper bowlers. You know, that's good practice for our batters as well. Yeah. But <clears throat> I'd actually just quietly been, so, so I've projected through till the second championship game um you know and i'm trying to make sure and I, and I would have done that as soon as we got the fixtures that's when i started to work that sort of stuff out so when peter comes to me and says right how many um, overs can the bowlers bowl i'm able to say straight away they've got this this and this double spell day here double spell day there he trusts me which is great he trusts me um with the information that i give him and he then designs the practice around that you know it, it and, and he'll run it through myself, Francie and, and Bota. And um, you know, we'll try and put something together that's really meaningful. And I, I'm happy because the bowlers are getting their, their match fix, which I need them to get. Slowly building their chronic workload up to 30 overs before our first game. So that's 30 overs in a week. Yep. And then when we go into match practices or matches, I'm sort of budgeting 40 per bowler, which is an awful lot. If a bowler's bowling 40 overs for the whole of the season, A, they won't be able to do that. It's almost impossible. But it means I've got that, you know, that 150% number that I told you about. So that can get, that keeps going up and up and up the more you put on. And there's the 150 is what I worked out from, I only wanted them to bowl 15 overs a week on a hard indoor school. That would yeah. be, it becomes very different during the season once they're, you know, I have to get them ready for a, for 40 overs. So a, a, a Jake Ball or a Luke Fletcher will have, you know, they'll bowl, bowl 40. I mean, um, Jake was bowling 50 overs in some of our games, which we knew that was a huge risk when a bowler does that because it puts them through a huge spike. But then we have to try and calm them down. The, the numbers, uh, unbelievably, the numbers work. And for someone who wasn't great at maths, I've, I've had to work with that. And it's been really useful for me. So I, I do spend a lot of time planning that the guys don't see that they just know the overs that they bowl but i do spend an awful lot of time planning because i know the numbers on injuries okay thanks kevin when did that that period start from is that october onwards or yeah so they, they obviously ended the season we ended the season late because we were playing t20 the t20 finals in october that was chilly wasn't it fancy um <laughs> And then you do have to give them that downtime. You find, I mean, it's really interesting. You find the modern younger cricketers, they tend to keep training. They get very bored. You give them time off and they're, they're just desperate to get back. So they were ticking over in the gym um, pretty much from when we finished. 
and that you, you you don't do that with all of them. I do you do give them a month down from bowling. You do have to deload them for that month. They really do need that. And yeah, so then it was November the eighth, whenever Peter wanted us back, we started the the gym program. But but I worked then with the physio and the SC. So we'll work out what their program needs to look like, and that'll be a bespoke program for each of the fast bowlers. I'll then work the numbers around that. So while they're in their um, major strength phase, I'll literally work around the S and C to work out the um, the numbers that they can do. And then when we move towards the the tent, which we're in now, obviously they then work around me. So there's a flip when I'm saying no, cricket's more cricket's more important now. But pre Christmas, their training is more important. So I'll let you have that bit, and then I'll have the other bit. And then how do you cater alongside that? For example, you use Jake Ball there. He obviously went to the Big Bash. Um, do you have to track his overs that he's bowling over there in nets and games? On the side? What he so we get, sent, we, we get sent his GPS numbers. Right. So he'll wear a, a GPS unit on his back. And, and in Australia in the Big Bash, they were brilliant. Their, their system is excellent. We use GPS as well. Um, and we're able to watch those loads. But well, one thing I will say is when you put someone over the white line, just let them go. Don't worry about workloads. Don't worry about um, you know, anything that will get make them anxious about getting injured. Remember that the minute they step over the white line, it is battle. And you go in there. If you have to bowl 50 or 60 overs in that game, so be it. We'll try and get it so we can call you back down. But remember, this is, this is sport and you've got to let them go out there and in, enjoy it. And one thing I tend not to let or encourage our uh, any of our coaches is to talk about workloads in front of a bowler. Um, you know, especially when you say, "Oh, if you bowl too many overs, you get you get injured." Mm-hmm. It's much more about, look, get out there, really enjoy it, because you're going to get injured anyway. <laughs> yeah, but enjoy it while you're doing it, and then hopefully, with the condition you've got there, you'll be more resistant. If you pick up an injury, you'll come back a little bit quicker. Yeah, there's there's has been an awful lot of of noise around, you know, injuries. You can't do this. You can't you can't do a squat. You can't do a deadlift. Rubbish. You do it well, it'll protect you. Right. Yeah. And, and then in relation to batters, uh, probably one more for Sullyan or, or, or Franksy. Um, they can pretty much train whenever for however long, <laughs> and have limited risks. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Um, what I would say is they're, they're a different breed to the bowlers. I think everybody knows that. Um, they operate on with, with a different um, approach towards the game from a, a mindset point of view. Um, the advent of the sidearm has changed, changed batting coaching forever. Um, the ability to facilitate practice without bowlers means that we can do so much more than just put a ball in a bowling machine. Um, we don't have to flog the bowlers like we used to have to do in the previous generation in bowling at them. We can provide them with the challenges that they need specific to red ball and then white ball cricket and the shorter format. So, yes, they all get a lot of um, attention. As, as, Shiny, as Shiny mentioned with the bowlers, we do similar, run similar programs with the batters. We get them in at different times. And, and some will be over uh, overhauling their games at different times and looking for looking for new things and others will be tweaking and, and monitoring and making sure that they're, they're in control of what they're doing. If they've had a good season or come off the back of a, a good period of form. Um, Sal, any more thoughts on that? Um, 
Yeah, I think I think whether this is batting or cricket in general, but I feel it more with batters is they're they're pretty confident in what um, they think they need, <laughs> um, and that, <laughs> um, and obviously it's different for you know how the cricket has matured, but I, I definitely think there's. Um, some education and awareness in around, you know, I know you think what you need, but actually the game is evolving so much quicker. And I, this is actually what I feel you need. And, and those conversations in the round, you know, you, you found a method, you always peak and trough as a batter. Um, so, so keeping, um, I guess, the mindset, like Franksy said, in the right place all the time can be challenging, but yeah, I, I just find that with batters more so is that there's um, you've got to be careful because you don't want to set them off tilt. But I think you've you've still got to always want to push them and and make them the best they can be. So don't be afraid to challenge at times. Absolutely, I'd agree with that, Sal. I think batters, I would say, are more inclined for what they want. I think bowlers bowlers understand what they need potentially more than batters. Um, and that's that's the sweet spot all the time with coaching. It's that, it's that element of challenge against the element of delivery. I think it might be due, to, um, you know, like with with batters. You, you know, you'd argue that you pr- you probably only get one chance in a game, and therefore, you know, you, you you've got that fear of failure, etc. And you know, you're probably a little bit hesitant in going to a place that you know that's going to make your game massively better, but actually you've you found a system that's got you to where you are and you're okay with it um I think that's the biggest thing and you know you I see it more so in t20 cricket when you know when you've got to manipulate fields and there's a shot that you can't play well actually you get stuck at a certain time um so you know how we keep expanding that and keeping that growth mindset and your eyes open into yeah just you're doing well keep the confidence and belief there because that's massively important but you know let's look at new ways to get better and getting better does look different you know it looks different for everybody often often when someone says to a player or to a coach player a or player b has got better what does better look like is better more volume of doing the the right thing off over and over again or is better is better i've made a technical change you know the danger is we lean on technique as an improvement when often it can be just repetition, repetition of the same thing to give you the best chance to succeed. So on that uh, technical side of things, uh, when are you likely to make changes on, on technique? Do you, do you leave that to off season or do sometimes you have to make technical changes within the season as well? Well, within the English game, you'd be pretty brave to start making massive technical changes within the season unless someone was having an absolute train smash. And you had a period of time where you were going to be able to take them out of the line of fire. Um, I think if you were going to t- make tweaks to, particularly batting, from a batting point of view, I think you would need to know that they probably weren't going to be put under too much pressure to play in the over the, the, the week or two, maybe even month, that you were going to implement some change to give them the chance to put the volume in to them the next time they step into the white heat of battle, like Shiny says, says they're ready to go. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, I follow a a simple batting process and I think it comes under three areas. I'm always keen to see where the batter is at point of release. 
Are they got a true understanding of their strengths and then look at where they are on decision making and I try and pocket them. I put those circles together where they overlap and I try and put a rubber stamp where I think the batter is on that. Um, and sometimes that might be, you know, in season where, you know, the, the batter could be falling over or something. So I think in those instances, you probably got to address it there and then because uh, it could be as simple as that. I'm, I'm really big on, you know, the point of release position where you can move in any which direction as quick, quick as possible. And if you're stuck there, you're making everything hard for yourself. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you would like to think that you do most of that hard work in, you know, under, helping the player understand their game and their strengths, um, when to attack and defend that sort of stuff, and, and give them a model to go and be confident with when they play. But if it needs addressing, it needs addressing. And then, Frankie, in relation to uh, associate cricket, you've obviously helped with the the UAE. Um, how have you found that, and how have you found the difference between associate cricket uh, and in relation to professional cricket with knots? Um, well, yes, subtly different, very different. Obviously, working working with a completely different culture to start with, um, completely out of my comfort zone initially to go and work in the Middle East um, with people whose first language isn't English. Um, that, that tests your coaching to an extreme. Um, so the simple language of cricket then became very, very easy to try and communicate. So once, once you understand that the people you're working with and why they play, um, what, what reasons they play cricket for, what progressions they're looking to make, how you can help that, then you can start to make steps forward. Ultimately, the, it, it taught me it taught me that they they didn't really care what I knew to start with, but they just wanted to know that I cared um, because I think they'd probably been left to their own devices for quite a long time. And it was around about a time when cricket in the UAE was trying to turn professional. So they, they were trying to put structures around them. They were trying to contract the, the boys more there, were, there, were more, there was more coaching coming. So initially, it, it was a case of, right, let's go slowly to start with. We don't want to overwhelm them with too much information. Let's just provide the support, try and provide some structure, and let's see how they go. Now, the bit that surprised me was that they, they tend to have quite a lot of flair. Um, they like to think that they've seen a lot of things in the PSL and on the, on the TV and the IPL and watched all sorts of cricket globally. And they've all got heroes that, that, that play the global game. Um, and obviously, a lot of that part of the world is expat-related cricket, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka. Um, so they've got cricket in their, in their heritage. They understand the game. What they tend not to want to do is the basics. They, they have this avoidance of doing the basics time and time and time again. Um, now, that took, and I was lucky enough to work there for probably o- over three or four years in pockets but that took probably until the start of the third year for them really to get the gist of understanding the basics for instance the basics of fielding to want to do the basics well was going to stand them in good stead to go and compete with the teams that they needed to compete with to then go again they would always then have the ability to bowl a wicket maiden as the first over of a t20 game or have a mystery spinner bowl in the 15th over or do something spectacular as a one-handed pick up and throw the stumps down. But the stuff that they should have been doing more and more of, like catching a high ball at long on, they just didn't want to do and they weren't interested in it. So ultimately we had to make it interesting. We had to make it challenging um, and they gradually started to progress. So that would be my overarching theme of my time with them would be that they, 
they had an avoidance of the basics to start with. Um, I think they started to get them more and more. And a lot of those boys now are exposed to play franchise cricket um, and have done well doing so. And I'd like to think that if I left them with anything, it would be to do the basics more often. Yeah, no, definitely resonates for, for Guernsey as well. Obviously, we're a bit further down than the UAE, but yeah, no, definitely. Uh, we talk quite a lot about the basics, actually, so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. You're listening to Under the Covers, Guernsey's very own cricket podcast. We'll be back after the short break. Bowled him! Beautiful bit of bowling from William Peatfield. The stump comes crashing out the ground, and that's a big wicket here in Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letitiae is the one who strikes, he gives it a big celebration, he writes it up in a book, he notes it down and sends them off. You can add Manpreet Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letitiae needed, that's the breakthrough Guernsey needed, and that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder to my left wants, a big smile on his face. And a wonderful shot there. Cover drive for four. Stokes already finding the boundary twice in this game. Um, Kevin, in relation to your role with England, how did you find the constant sort of on-the-road travelling? You probably didn't spend a huge amount of time in England, did you? Nope. Um, I think I worked it out in my... For some reason, I just sat there in my uh, eighth year of working for the ECB and I was flying somewhere, I can't remember where it would have been, and I worked out I'd been away from home for three and a half years at that particular point and had a young family as well. So it, it was... It, it was a... A fantastic part of it but it was a tricky part of it and um, you know I'm very very draining um, however that was always um, overtaken by the you know the ability or, or the opportunity to work with a great set of coaches the support staff were very very close there's some excellent people there and then the different players you know the, to have the privilege to work with you know hundreds of players and you know, and very, very good players. It, it it just expands you as a coach hugely because you we would get an in you know different intake every year. So you'd have fifteen to eighteen on a performance program, and then um, your England Lions tour might then be you know a, a fifteen, but then some of those would be different. There'd be a pace program coming in as well. You'd get injured players coming down from England that you had to rehabilitate as well. Um, so you you had this unique opportunity to see lots of different players, but also in lots of different um, environments. So Bangladesh, India, um, South Africa, Australia. We actually had a period where most of our winter tours, they, they were really, really keen to hit the subcontinent, obviously, and get better um, out there, which obviously hasn't worked too well in this last tour. But an awful awful lot of work has been done in the subcontinent and, and actually from my point of view going to there as a fast bowling coach was brilliant so the, the wobble team has effectively been born from there and um, you know the fact that we now are much better at reverse swing you know we would we'd use a different ball you'd use an sg ball which is, a, is effectively a very cheap cricket ball and it, it deteriorates really quickly and, and you know, to understand then that you've got different types of wobble seams, you've got different, you, you use your pace ranges differently. So if a bowler has a cruise speed of 80 miles an hour, they might actually sit at 75 to 76 and move up and down that pace range a little bit more. 
and then save a little sort of eyeballs out over for here or there. We, we worked on lots of different strategies for that. So, you know, the, the opportunity to go away and do that was absolutely fantastic. And also to see how players you know, operated in Sri Lanka, which you know, unbelievable humidity when you're playing in, in places like that. And you know, I think they, they all, you know, from a character perspective, when you see, especially the fast bowlers coming off or a batter who's come off and batted all day or, you know, in one of the 50 over games at stadium, you know, it's brutal what they went through, but it did toughen them up. And, you know, and, I, and I'm very proud to have been a part of that and seeing how England are moving on now. And they generally do compete really well in most places in the world now. And, and that's, you know, been through an awful lot of um, work abroad uh, on England Lions tours, pace programmes, performance programmes, whatever it's been, you know, underpinning all the work that England did was a, a big programme down to the under 19s as well, who go to those those places too. And, and you know, it is, it is a huge privilege to go to different cricketing nations. And, and what's really interesting as well is the coaches are all very, very open. So you would spend time talking to your opposition coaches and, and actually learning from them as well, because you do reciprocal tours, which was nice. So generally we, we had agreements um, where uh, no matter where we toured. So if we toured in India, they would then come back um, the following year to us. So you actually got a decent camaraderie with the other coaches and, and you've learned huge amounts from them. No, it sounds sounds fascinating. Uh, um, and then, Sully Ann, we've had a couple of questions that have come in uh, from people on the chat. Uh, how do you feel the the WBBL is sort of competing and developing against the men's format? Um, yeah, I think well, it's it's a few years behind uh, the men's BBL. Um, I think there's about five years in it, but my word, it's um, it's shifting now. Um, and it, you know, the investment from Cricket Australia to make sure um, the women's programs get in the profile. I think the biggest thing that I've noticed since being over here, you know, female sport is on uh, free-to-air TV all the time, whether it's AFL or cricket. Um, so it's got a huge engagement of fans, um, an investment. You know, it's not just younger girls watching the game; it's everyone. Um, and, and, you know, they've put a lot of work to make sure that women's cricket gets the profile um, that it deserves over here. I think naturally, you know, cricket being the number one sport in Australia make, makes that um, an easier target to achieve, so to speak. Um, but, you know, you, you could, you can, I guess the players from a profile point of view probably are getting the same recognition as the male players. You know, if they go to a restaurant, that type of stuff, you know, all the Aussie girls, the... They're well known now because of that profile. So, um, I'm, like Shiny talks about his experience of being privileged, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to to work in probably the best female domestic competition in the world. Um, um, I've learned a lot certainly uh, from the experience. And, and Hurricanes, it's been challenging. Um, you know, we've we've probably not had near the success that we're looking to achieve. So it's been a been a long journey but um yeah I've, I've been fortunate to work with some incredible players and work with some great coaches is there much of a mix between the men's uh, franchise side as well as the women's so do they mix together much or is it very much two sort of separate entities um I, I think that it did 
um before like the the competition now runs um at separate times of the year so what again the ca did very well was they they captured a, a spell between october and november where there's no sport on in australia whatsoever apart from some international games so it meant that women's cricket on a friday saturday and a sunday night was the only sport on um so everyone just watched it it, it was unbelievable whoever thought of that was you know genius um so you're not competing then against obviously the men's game so that's now all separate but from you know my organization where I work the my next door to my office is Adam Griffith um and then Jeff Fawn who's the Tigers you know we we have a lot of conversations um you know I'm pretty close with Jeff now and we you know we all have the same dilemmas and the same successes you know it's all it's all the same no matter if it's male or female so yeah I love the collaboration piece. Um, it's probably the one thing that I really miss in England. And you you notice that from the geography. You know, I used to, at my time at Loughborough, I used to go and sit next to Shiny. I had my own office, but I just like those little pocket conversations. Um, and over here, um, the, obviously from state to state, you're so far away from each other. And there's actually fierce rivalry, like... When I played Australia, I always felt you were playing against 12 people anyway, but it's just inbuilt in their system. Like the sharing of information between states, when it gets to the thing, you get nothing. <laughs> you know, if you want a little bit of help and guidance, not a chance. So, yeah, you've got to utilise the people in your organisation because you just don't cross paths over here. Yeah, and then Frank, so, um, you're obviously involved in the T10 league, like you said. Uh, how does sort of training structure around a T10 game? Is it simply just rock up and try and hit the ball as far as you can. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it, mate, if I'm honest. Um, we had three days um, and I was, I tried to convince myself I needed to have an open mind about it. It was pretty chaotic because everybody wanted to get involved and crack on. Um, but yeah, it, it was just the ultimate highlights package. We had quite a diverse player group, you know, from, from someone like Chris Gale, who's played more cricket than most, through to a young lad called Kushal Mala, who was a 16-year-old um, who was playing for Nepal. So we had a very diverse group and some of them are still very much finding their way. So they need a lot more volume. Um, you're trying to sharpen up your fielding um, as much as anything, making sure that the, when you're putting a scratch team together at quite, at quite short notice, to get that understanding of how the fielding group's going to work is important. Individual skills as players move around the world among, among franchise cricket, they tend to travel with the kit. Um, some will have good competitions, some will, some will, some will fail. Um, and that was pretty much how it worked. I think the format is, I think the format is, is here to stay, if I'm honest. I think it's a really, really good format for countries who don't have a lot of cricket being played in it. I think it's a great way to start the game. Um, and I think that's the best way I can leave it, having been there for a, a very short snapshot of three weeks. I think if we were going to grow the game globally, T10 cricket is perfect for it. Hmm. Yeah. And then what have you guys found sort of the most challenging uh, within coaching? People. People. <laughs> it's just people. Every day it's people. And, and through good and bad and the most challenging of situations in my mind, it's, it's the interaction. It's, it's the engagement with each other. It's the fallout, it's the success, it's the let's go and do it again. Um, it, it's all of that for me. It's, it's, it's about understanding each other, trying to get to know more, um, 
and making sure that you're, you're in the best place to succeed. Uh, I'd agree oh, with you there, Frank. Frank, Frank we, had a, we had an interesting moment, didn't we, last year during one of the T20 games when we were, it, it was going to the wire and um, we, we'd split the dress room. So we had a dress room and it was, is it the exec suite? Frank, I don't know Trent Bridge as well as you yet, mate. And, um, and Frank's is incredibly calm. He, he's um, he basically called the general because he's got this amazingly sort of authoritative um, demeanour about him most of the time. Every now and again, <laughs> the lads are given a little bit of a spray, but then he, they're, they're, they're fine after that. But it was extraordinary because I, I, I sit quite deadpan when I watch. I used to get terribly, this was one of my learnings from being Somerset head coach, I used to get pretty emotional and it would affect players around me. So now I'd pretty much go deadpan. And trust me, I'm, I'm absolutely burning inside. But I, I just watched the general come in and literally just he exploded next to me, which was great because I'd not seen it for a while. And I, I really quite enjoyed it. And we ended up having a great conversation about it, didn't we? And that if you can't find a place in the game, because you do, as you watch these cricketers and you want them to do so well, as coaches, you've got to find your outlet. And I think, you know, for me, one of the worst parts, but you know it comes with it, is where is your outlet? You know, you've got to try and keep yourself um, level enough to be able to be useful during the game. You know, the, the, the training side of it is beautiful and, and where you're trying to develop players, you know, that, that's almost the quiet side of the game, that the bit that you struggle to affect is when they're out in the middle. And that's where I love to watch other coaches and how they deal with it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's where a huge part of, of, of my development around the tougher sides of the game of watching people like the general and Peter Moores, who've seen far more county cricket um, and cricket than I have over the last few years because a lot of my, my work's been in um, development and just quick tours here and there. Right, yeah. And would you say the same, Solian, or? Um, What's the most challenging? I think leading change is the most challenging thing for me. Um, and when I say change, I think just like adjustment um whatever you're doing people are always trying to adjust um and it's not easy <laughs> i think adjustment can be quite scary and i think in the head coach position the bit that i'm always developing is that you are when you're leading change you have to manage sideways you have to manage up and you have to manage down um and never assume that people are on the journey <laughs> because that is that is a that trips you up so you know and that's that has to be constant that messaging about you know what are we doing why are we doing and, and get really excited about it um but yeah it's making sure everyone is on the same path all the time and I would you've always got to find time to keep referring to what why are you doing what you're doing and this is how we're going to do it and keep people on board that's my that's certainly my biggest challenge so can i ask you a quick question on that yeah do you do that individually with your players and your 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 management staff or do you try and get them in together and keep the message moving sort of jointly as a group um it does depend but um from a staff point of view um i do it both so you know we 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 meet weekly um, I meet my Triple SM staff weekly. 
Um, and then we have a collective group of, I guess, objectives that I work through staff with individually, which we've just gone through that process, even though I guess we're in the thick of it. Um, but it's amazing, actually, once. So, you know, people say, Do you, you know, meeting for a meeting. But once you create that connection, you see things that you've never seen before from people. And my word, that gets exciting. Like it gives you another spring in your step. Um, so I, it does depend, I reckon, shiny on the people as well, because some people need more attention than others. But um, yeah, we we meet weekly in those certain pockets and then just making sure from an individual point of view, people have got all the support they need. I think challenge comes easy, but the support is the biggest and the hardest thing to manage at times as well. And then who looks after you? Um, I've well, <laughs> um, certain people I've had to work hard at making sure I've got mentors around me. I wasn't, uh, I had mentors, but I didn't invest in them properly. Um, and I do that now, and I've I've seen the benefit for one keeping my confidence where it needs to be because every coach has self doubt. Um, but also making sure I'm learning all the time because again, if you, you can get so immersed in your own organization that you lose a different perspective. Um, and then, you know, I think the, my boss is really important. So I've, I've actually got a relationship with my boss, high performance manager that, you know, is very close and we speak fairly regular, which I like, and it's not always about work. So we've got a stronger relationship than just, you know, wins and losses as well, which I think is is important. I feel supported and valued. Um, but yeah, you know, if it's not going well, sometimes I will want to avoid those certain things, but they're so important to stay connected. And then, Sally, a question from Hannah, the ladies' captain. Um, so, how does your elite ladies' training look like in relation to the men's? Is it is it similar to what um, Kevin was saying before and what Frankie was saying? Um. Yes. It's funny, actually, because I'll ask for things and the comment I'll get back from our operations manager is sometimes, well, the men don't even get that. I'm like, I don't care. High performance is high performance. Um, and if you say that to me one more time, I will slap you in the face. That's, you know, um, it, it. I think it depends on your organisation. But, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with some amazing people um and and you know i've listened to shiny talk so much about baseball and i could listen to all day some of the stuff that i've learned from him i've taken into the environment that we have in tassie and don't always expect that certain organizations are where you think they should be because i think professional cricket's actually got a long way to go um it's from a certain extent um so i would say and this is hand on heart, that the girls train just as hard or even more. Um, and I think that's more so because where they're at in their cricket as well, you have different types of cricketers and, you know, the men's programme, the, the professionalisation has been there for a very long time. A lot of those guys know their game quite well. And I'm not saying they don't train as less, but they, they just need to focus on the simple things. But yeah, Hannah, the, the girls are working really hard and we're trying to pave the way. Actually, the girls are all professional over here, but they don't get paid the same as the the men. So, yeah, we're not interested in waiting for other people to open doors. We're putting in the hard work and then hopefully we'll bang the door down and, you know, people will listen a little bit more in the round the support that we need.
And then what sort of advice, again, this from Hanno, would you give to your, your captains, your players ahead of sort of like the season and matches? Uh, captains, um, you need to be comfortable with not being liked at times. You're going to have to make some tough decisions. Um, and, you know, you will be supported no matter what from me in around whatever you you decide on that. But, you know, the captains that I think have worked the best are the ones that you know, are still connected. They're able to adapt their styles to certain peoples, but are comfortable with at times that, you know, I'm going to upset someone by a decision I make, but this is for the sake of the team. And my job is not to hurt this team. I can hurt you every now and then, and I can salvage the relationship a bit later, but my job is the team. And then a question uh, to any of you guys is, um, we've got quite a few young coaches on on the um, platform here. So, did you guys all start from a young age as well? And did you help think that sort of helped your own games? Yeah, I, I did. Um, I did my original NCA qualifications. I started when I was 19. I was a young professional at Hampshire and Hampshire were great. They paid to put us through our um, coaching awards. And I, I was actually uh, part of Berkshire cricket. So I'm a Berkshire lad and um, two brilliant coaches one called Ralph Della and Les Smith they sort of took me in and allowed me to coach with them you know the, the old staff coaching and, um, and and that just grew my passion so I've coached all the way through and um, I really enjoyed all my qualifications I absolutely loved them and, and I think the, the actual coach ed system that was in place when it was old NCA and then when it moved on and you had I mean, already mentioned him before, Gordon Lord and, and Frank C and Sal know him really well. You know, an amazing man who we have got. I think England cricket have got an awful lot to be grateful to Lordy for because, you know, pretty much all of the coaches who've come through have come through Lordy and his caring way. Um, and yeah, if if I could give advice to any any young coaches, it's do your do your qualifications absolutely go out there embrace them do them and then sally sort of mentioned there find some mentors and and some people not necessarily in cricket i was lucky enough to have a guy called dave allred as uh, lordy actually arranged for him to be my mentor but i got 14 days a year with him during my time with the ecb and to have someone from outside cricket was really really refreshing um, and gave me a completely different perspective on on just coaching in general. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be my, don't, don't think you've got your qualification and that's it. Actually, that's the pathway to going even further as a coach. Um, and, and that's been massively. <clears throat> yeah. I started um, very young as well. So, you know, in, in the teens and it was more so, you know, to get a bit of extra pocket money. <laughs> um, I'm not saying it paid well as, you know, coaching the under 11s, but um, I just I just really enjoyed it. Um, but it wasn't until I was 18, you know, I'd, I'd got my level two by then. And I think I was 20 and I did my level three. Um, but as Shani said, my experience through the ECB coach education was fantastic. I loved my level four. It, it, took, it was hard work doing a full time job. And then, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a degree, but it really, we you don't really do much in the sense of learning the game, but all the stuff we did about integrated practice, how to manage systems, how to manage people, you know, I'm so thankful for those experiences. 
And then we, you mentioned, Paul, that you did quite a little bit in Australia as well. So was, was yours the same starting at a young age? Yeah, probably a little bit later, um, based on the fact I was you know, very focused on playing. Similar to Shiny, as you sort of get, get, probably get a little bit later into your 20s, you start to think about what's coming next. And that was when I probably started to take it seriously. Um, I think the one thing, I, I, what I would encourage is all, is not to feel as though as a coach that you're not going to get stuff wrong. Um, I think there's this there's this perception that coaches aren't allowed to make mistakes, and we do. Um, and you've got to give yourself a little bit of room with that. It's important um, to have the right people around you to understand those mistakes, and you can talk through them with them. You know, if you if you get it wrong, then you get it wrong. It's just like anything else. So, I've been fortunate to make mistakes as I've gone along. I've been supported with that. Um, and Sally mentioned, um, Sally, I mentioned earlier on about confidence and trying to keep your confidence levels up because often um, we lose, we can lose our confidence um, quickly as players lose confidence. Um, and the hardest bit with that then is how we rediscover it. Now we get our, our mojo back, if you like, and, and we can get coaching well and looking after the players properly. So, yeah, um, get, getting into it, get those mistakes going. You know, don't, don't try and hide from them. You know, feel like they're going to benefit you, and then and, and then get moved from there. And then probably one for you, Kevin. Uh, it's coming from the Robinsons. They, they want to know: Are England doing enough to sort of blood young fast bowlers? Is that a priority? Because obviously, if they're sort of saying if Anderson and Broad both retire uh, at the same sort of time, you know, they're in their thirties. Is there enough sort of players coming through the system to step up? So it's a brilliant question. Um. So my, my, my job was to produce um, a corral of fast bowlers who could um, perform at international level. I, I'm incredibly proud of the guys that have come through that have not played. And there are many, many of those and that won't play, but have all been good enough. And I'm going to base that on knowing what the bowlers who've played for England are like. So from Jimmy and from Stuart, you know, I saw those as very, very young lads and was lucky enough to work with them coming through. Um, so in a funny sort of way, they've been the problem. Because remember, there are two best bowlers ever, over a thousand wickets between them. They are brilliant. They've caused a bit of a logjam because there's only ever really been one spot up for grabs because uh, Ben Stokes would have that, um, that all-rounder slot because he's good enough to play as a fast bowler on his own. Um, so the, the other answer to the question is, yes, there are lots out there. And we've got one of them in Jake Ball. We've got a, a couple of young bowlers who are coming through, one especially called Zach Chappell, who's been on pace programmes before. You know, they have the attributes. And if you were to go through county cricket and look, you know, the people who haven't been able to play. So let's take Jamie Porter at the moment. You know, you just can't stop taking wickets. He's a 60, 70 wicket a year bowler but has never had a go at, at playing for his country if we go a little bit further back at Glenn Chapel, who are pretty much every every player frankly included would say how on earth has that guy not played for England you know bottom line is we've had two absolute legends playing for England and have, have helped us to become very very successful but that won't last forever and we have got to be able to blood our next lot of fast bowlers coming through and you do have to learn to play at that level. Um, and one thing I would say, so from a fast bowling perspective, playing for England would be different to county cricket and actually, in a strange way, slightly 
more suits fast bowlers because you don't have to bowl as much. Mm. You know, it's not as brutal with the amount of games. So, I mean, our first, it's eight fixtures, isn't it, Frank C? First eight fixtures yeah. in a row, there's three days in between each fixture. And then we go straight into T20 and they stick two more games in the middle of that. And then you go into 50 overs and then you go into the rest of your championship games. With England, okay, so we're playing back-to-back tests at the moment because of COVID. They're trying to squeeze everything in and keep the bubble as short as they can. Um, But generally, there's some decent rest between them. And those players, remember, during the year, they have a really well-thought-out programme with brilliant science and, and med people looking after them. So there is a group of fast bowlers below who are being looked after. There's a lad called Ollie Robinson who's been going out with them, Craig Overton, Jamie Overton, you know, Saki Mahmood. They've got lots of guys who they are really trying to look after now. So when eventually spaces come, and, and, and let's hope Jimmy goes on for another two, three, four years. Stuart goes on for another five, six, seven years because they're unbelievably good. And also they help our young bowlers, bowlers massively. They, they are really giving people who will accelerate their, um, their transition into the game. It, it is coming and there are some really exciting bowlers down there. But people are going to have to be patient because they're going to have to learn their craft at that level and in different conditions. Yeah, and then another question actually around this um, from someone that Frankie knows very well from Chris Edwards um, is there's plenty of young quicks at the moment sort of getting stress fractures uh, at a very young age. Um, he's an Australian, so he's listed Cummins, Berendorf and Pattinson. Um, is there anything behind this or is it, you know, maybe a spike in workload potentially? Go on, Johnny. Fire on your stress fracture. I thought that was for you. No, no, no. He just knows me. (laughs) (laughs) So, sorry, is there a reason for... Stress fractures. A lot of of the same sort of injuries. Um, Like I said, he's he's listed three Australians there. Um, I'm sure there was plenty in England as well. Yeah, so... There's new research that comes out on on stress fractures. Originally, it was mixed actions. That's been proven to not be the case. Um, Then it was workloads. There's definitely something in that, but it's definitely not not the answer. Um, I think some people are predisposed to injuries. I'll give you the example of, I've used it quite a lot lot on um, Coach Ed, presentations that I do if you put a picture of Simon Jones mm-hmm. yeah. um, England and Glamorgan and Worcester I put a picture of him up and he is absolutely ripped to shreds looks amazing and then you put one of the first pictures of Jimmy up before he really um, started to look up it two totally different cut the heads off and said which one do you think lasts the longest and they all go for Simon Jones you know that there's something there that predisposes you to injury but it doesn't mean you have to um, to go out of the game or you get more injured you just you, it's a conundrum that I don't think we've answered yet but I know the ECB and the science and med team are, are fantastically diligent and they're trying to answer this I, I'm lucky enough that I still get all the newest research through and luckily I'm trying to make sure that not to top of that that tree so Andy Pick who now um, you know brilliant to work with with our best young bowlers 
you know, we've had some biomechanical assessments made of our young academy lads and we're using the newest research to try and coach these guys into natural but better positions so they'll be less predisposed to stress fractures um i think you know stress fractures are a really interesting one so i know that i had a spinal x-ray quite a while ago and it showed up that i had two cracks in my back i never actually stopped bowling for a stress fracture i probably had a sore back got to the end of the season it healed um and then you come back and what we do in um, in county cricket now and in international cricket is we do a lot of scans. So you get you get some sort of pain and bam, you, you scan straight away and that shows up a stress fracture. So I bet if you scan, frankly, I think you've had stress fracture, haven't you? No, no. Touch what I did not Chinese, but I, I, I bet, did get, I bet I did he probably has. If you've had a sore back, yeah. you might have had a stress yeah. fracture. <laughs> but so, yeah. some people will have been able to bowl through it. Um, and there are many more injuries out there. So ankle ankle spurs are out there, tendinopathies of the knees. It's just the the stress fracture is a bit of a headline grabber and it's a season ender. Um, it's now not, thankfully, in most cases, it's not a career ender. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, really, really good um, research and treatments going on into that. And, and going back to my original um, message, is don't worry about injuries as long as you're doing everything you can with your with your training, with your recovery, with your nutrition, with your, making your action as smooth and as efficient as it can possibly be within its own natural boundaries. Get them to go out there and love and enjoy the game. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and then finally, just to wrap it up, uh, if you could give a young coach or, or a coach um, some advice for the future or potentially some, the best bit of advice all three of you have had, what would it be? Um, probably people over systems is massive. They're both important, but make sure you look after your people um, and never stop learning. So the biggest thing I've, I guess I realised once I left the Loughborough and the ECB environment, which I was in there for seven or eight years, um, to a completely new one where I didn't know anyone, I got I learned so much in the space of 12 months. So you've got to have people around you that are trust and are loyal at times. But my word, you've got to find people that um, are going to take you to a new place as well. Just on that, how, how have you found sort of keeping up to date with, with current technology and current coaching uh, information, if you like, as opposed to when you first started out? Um, from like being in Tasmania, because that's a different story in itself or um, in general. <laughs> in general, but yeah, if you want to lead it down being in Tasmania, you can do. Yeah, I still walk to get my paper here. It's um, We're still trying to get there. Um, but no, I, you know, I've, I've, I've still got all those connections which is great. Um, and, you know, I'm not probably as advanced as Shiny who gets all hot off the press research, which is now going to forward to me, by the way, um, <laughs> in around fast bowling. But, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that space through the connections that I've made from those coaches. And, you know, I feel that if, if I don't know an area that I need to, I've, I've, there's always someone or somewhere that's going to help me out and, and make sure I'm, I guess, better upskilled in that area. Yeah. And then, Kevin, what would your advice be to, to a young coach or all the best advice you've ever had? Um, I've had some, some amazing advice from some great people. I'd say now being 
pretty old, 52 years old. I, I just, every day, I know it sounds a little bit corny, and this is probably where um, the, the mentor I mentioned, a guy called Dave Allred, who was Johnny Wilkinson's kicking coach, and then has moved, he, he was Francesco Molinari's performance coach. You know, he's worked in so many different sports. He just kept saying to me, you know, every day, how can you improve? And whoever you come across, you know, with whatever, however you coach, can they improve? What can you give them to just improve them, either as a person or as a player or whatever? You know, and Sal said there, never stop learning. You know, I, I, I read, I, I tend not to read books anymore. I read articles or, um, you know, the, the journals and uh, that, that I've, I quite like. I just go for abstracts and just quickly read the abstract. Is there anything interesting I can have a little look at from there? You know, and it's just around that, can I keep improving myself every single day? And I think the day that I stop doing that will be the day that the boots go up and the surfboard comes out for good. <laughs> Brilliant. I'd agree with both of those, um, absolutely. I come back to the people thing and... Players and teams will hang on every word that every coach ever says. They'll all read into things differently. So keep your radar up. Use your words wisely. And if you're not sure what to say, then say nothing. No, very good. Thank, thank you very much. And uh, thanks very much for coming on. Um, obviously, sally Ann, you got up ridiculously early. So no doubt, Franks, you are going to repay that favour. So. <laughs> yes. Hold on, Sal. What time is it, Sal? <laughs> Um, it's now quarter past six in the morning. You go and get your paper now. <laughs> <laughs> Tasmania just sounds like like a bigger version of Guernsey, to be honest. When you said about getting your paper, <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Well, it probably is because it's absolutely stunning. I absolutely love living here. Um, but yeah, it's eye opening. <laughs> no, excellent. But no, really appreciate your time and, and thanks very much for for coming on and and giving your information across. Thank, Thank you for having me. Really Cheers, guys. Good Cheers. to see you. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very useful. Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button and keep listening. No one's gonna shoot me down.